Well, back in early 2000s, 2003, 4, I was uh, very interested in uh, neurology, uh, in MS. It's one of my special, I'm a general practitioner, but I have a few special interests. And I wasn't happy with the drugs that were being used in multiple cirrhosis. They seem to be uh, heavy duty drugs. Uh, they cause a lot of side effects. People couldn't stay on them very often. I'm talking about the betaferons and copaxone and drugs like that. And uh, also, I wasn't impressed by their success in the sense that uh, they may have reduced the frequency of attacks in re relapsing, remitting multiple cirrhosis. And I accepted that. That was true. But I don't think they stopped the progression in any way. So I was looking for something that might do that uh, because it was, seemed to me a progressive neurological condition. And I read an article on the Irish Times, actually, written by Mary Boyle Bradley, who subsequently wrote a book called Up the Creek with a Paddle, which is about LDN. And she was living in New York at the time, and her husband had MS, and he was on the beta-ferons. And uh, she had come to know a Dr. Bernard B. Harry, who was a neurologist living in New York. And at that time, he was... He, he was uh, he had been research doctor for the AIDS crisis and he was looking for drugs that would affect the immune system because of course that's what happens with AIDS and HIV, your immune system crashes. So in the pursuit of that, uh, naltrexone was delivered, was discovered uh, and, 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 and produced to help uh, IV drug users. It was a morphine uh, agonist and it would replace the morphine, if people took an injection of heroin or morphine, uh, they, they didn't get any higher buzz from it. But you used it in high dosage, 50 milligrams. And it was quite successful. And he was a part of that research, Dr. Bihari. Now, he had a big budget. He had a lot of students that he was comparing the drug with the people with HIV. And he noticed that when he reduced the dose, because he wasn't quite sure of what the dosage should be, but when he reduced the dose, the, the, the effects of LDN changed. He was measuring the endorphin levels to try and uh, figure out what was going on in the immune system of the patients. And he noticed that at low dose of uh, naltrexone, the endorphin levels often tripled, uh, which was a surprise finding. He certainly didn't expect it, but he noted it and uh, he, he checked it a few times and this was true. So he thought that the low dose, uh, while the same drug, naltrexone, had different qualities of action and uh, could be used maybe for different things than the high dose. The high dose blocks the endorphin sites 24 hours a day. The low dose, apparently after more research, blocks it only for a very short time, two or three hours, and there's a rebound phenomenon then by the brain and the endorphin centers where they produce a lot of their own endorphins. So it stimulates the body to produce their own and therefore improves uh, your immune system. Fritz Bell was uh, a, a doctor who was using LDN and uh, histamine therapy in his wife and he found that very successful and I subsequently looked up a number of websites and other emails from other patients who've been using LDN 
and I found everything about the, the treatment method was supportive and positive and this I found very encouraging. Subsequently I spent the following year both testing and investigating, further investigating LDN use. Uh, I tested it extensively on myself, found positive results, ultimately decided to purchase uh, 5,000 capsules of LDN from a pharmacy in New York and uh, with these I uh, effectively advertised the use of um, LDN by writing an article in a magazine called New Pathways, uh, the magazine of the MS Resource Centre and MS Charity and with that I gained literally hundreds of patients who already obviously knew about LDN and simply wanted a source of where to obtain it. I, since that time I, I've never been able to give up the idea and, and the method has simply snowballed ever since. Um, we now have about five, six hundred patients on LDN uh, for many different reasons, mainly MS, but also other autoimmune conditions like ankylosing spondylitis, um, uh, colitis, Crohn's disease, uh, Sjogren's syndrome, dermatomyositis, uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, etc. There are many autoimmune conditions and uh, also a number of people with cancer, the, the most dramatic of which was a gentleman with uh, lung cancer that was considered um, terminal. He was given effectively three months to live and that was seven years ago. He's been on LDN ever since and the cancer has simply shrunk away and disappeared and they can no longer find it. And he's still alive, fit and well, uh, with, with no problems at all and remains on LDN that he's now receiving from his GP. The current mechanism of action of LDN is widely debated. There are many studies showing that naltrexone not only works on the opioid receptors for which it's licensed but on multiple other receptors and, and biological systems. There's a, two main, main sort of stays of thought. One is that it boosts the amount of um, something called methenkephalin, which is a natural happy hormone in your body. So that's an endorphin boost. And that appears to have an anti-inflammatory effect. So that's one of the most long-standing theories. Alongside that, it's been found in a number of studies in test tubes, that's in vitro studies, that the LDN will actually bind to a receptor called a TLR receptor. Now, TLR receptors are involved in the first point of the immune cascade for when, for example, you're attacked by a bacteria or a foreign body. So the idea is, in this theory, that the LDN is suppressing an inappropriately stimulated TLR system that is starting a cascade which then affects, for example, myelin or causes an autoimmune reaction to continue on longer than it should. Well, uh, LDN is a very interesting uh, agent for treating uh, an array of different conditions and uh, currently it's being used as an off-label uh, medication, certainly in the United States. And primarily it's for chronic medical conditions such as multiple sclerosis or fibromyalgia or gut issues. So for example, uh, Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease, or irritable bowel syndrome are the areas where it's being employed in an off-label manner. While it's uh, unlikely that pharmaceutical type uh, research with uh, large randomized controlled trials will happen, I think that there is increasing interest in doing clinical studies which will 
broaden the uh, scope of use and hopefully encourage other practitioners to utilize the medication. So I think that the future is, is bright for the use of LDN in chronic medical conditions, but uh, we still are challenged by the fact that uh, the traditional model of research uh, in the, in the, in the um, medical field right now is, is not something that we're seeing a lot of activity with this medication just simply because of the economics. One of the criticisms uh, that have been leveled against low-dose naltrexone for years is, ah, but it's unpublished. Um, uh, there are no publications to show that this works. I gave a presentation recently in the United States and I did a uh, PubMed search and there are now 83 publications um, in PubMed uh, on specifically on low-dose naltrexone. So there's a small and growing number of publications on the use of low-dose naltrexone. Uh, there are very enthusiastic uh, physicians, very committed to low-dose naltrexone because we've observed clinically what it can do. There are nice publications for fibromyalgia, and there's a fantastic publication by Professor Jill Smith in using uh, low-dose naltrexone for Crohn's disease. Her first publication was in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, and her next publication was in a much lower-ranking um, journal. Um, uh, and it's disturbing when you see a randomized placebo-controlled trial uh, published by a professor from a prominent university that doesn't get published in a high-impact uh, journal. And I really struggle to understand why um, a journal like the New England Journal of Medicine wouldn't publish something uh, of that quality when you have a medication that's very inexpensive and potentially very beneficial for lots of patients. And the sad thing is, until these big journals decide to uh, publish uh, the data, the little publications don't have as much impact as we would like. So why it is that the big journals don't publish, um, I guess there are lots of different theories about that, um, but uh, it's disturbing that it's not happening. Uh, doing research in a clinical basis is actually quite challenging. It's very time-consuming and it, it actually is quite costly. So to do a simple study where you review your practice, uh, of course, that's the easiest one to do and it's the most likely one that you'll see in clinical-based practices. But to try and do a randomized controlled trial uh, is a very daunting task. Uh, that takes the, the level of uh, involvement and finances to a, a completely different level. That type of study, uh, I, I personally don't see how you can do that without having sponsored support, whether that comes from the government, uh, private industry, et cetera. There obviously needs a, a large capital investment to pull that off. Um, so that's, that's basically setting the bar too high for most clinical practices to even entertain that. Really what we've done is we've, we've demanded so much in terms of the level of uh, involvement and, and, and the the quality parameters that are required for a randomized controlled trial, that only the very elite, so in other words, academic institutions, major corporations actually can do the studies. So that unfortunately means that we're seeing less and less novel research because those, those entities have vested interest in the type of research they do. But many things, many breakthroughs in, in medicine have come from doctors working in a clinic, doing something novel, taking something that deviates from the traditional approach and discovering that it actually has an application that we never realized. And so that's one of the challenges we face in our modern world is that that type of research is happening less and less and less. And so I started using it in MS and over, that's in 2004 or 5. I went to the first conference in 2005 in New York 
um, and met most of the people who, who were in the LDN business there, including Professor Garoni, who's a professor of neurology in Milan, and who repeated the work done uh, by Dr. Bihari and discovered that uh, the endorphins were lowest in people with primary progressive multiple sclerosis, for which the neurologists tell us that there's no treatment. I give all my patients with this condition, LDN, and they're all got better and they're stable. So the forms of LDN that we have in the UK that we know are safe, well controlled and come from a known source are the LDN liquid, one milligram per one mil, LDN sublingual drops that are 10 milligram per mil and they're used under the tongue, LDN capsules in three milligram and 4.5 milligram strengths and also there is an LDN cream which comes in half milligram per one mil. So within that range there usually is a formulation that will work for you. And I have had very great success in some conditions, particularly uh, fibromyalgia, which is an acute pain syndrome. Again, it was thought to be kind of psychological at one stage. We now know it has to do with a more uh, inflammatory uh, situation in, 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 in neurons, in the glial cells maybe, etc., in the brain, and the increase in cytokines. So we're getting to know a lot more about these conditions, and they're genuine conditions. Uh, LDN in fibromyalgia has dramatically improved most people. And Stanford University, who has done some research in this, uh, has proved that and advocated its use as a primary agent. Yeah, the pain started to build slowly. So I started having pain down one side and then slowly that got worse and worse and it spread everywhere and I thought it was my mattress. So I bought a new mattress and realised that that mattress is even worse. And then after that mattress, I bought another mattress and so on and so on till 10 mattresses down the line. Um, a lady said to me in a shop, if this mattress doesn't suit you, then there's something wrong. And I thought, that's a bit cheeky. But however, I thought, well, you know, this one's probably going to be okay. But that was actually the worst one of them all. It was horrendous. Um, and I ended up going to the GP and explained to him what was happening in floods of tears. And he said to me, where are you hurting? And I said, I'm hurting everywhere. There's not part of my body that doesn't hurt. It literally felt like I was bruised all over, um, like I'd been beaten up. And he said, I think you've got something called fibromyalgia. And I said... Um, Right, I had heard of it briefly from one of these ladies in the mattress shop. Her daughter was diagnosed with it and she'd had trouble sleeping on a mattress. So he said, but to get, the, to get, to get it confirmed that that's definitely what it was, I'll send you to a consultant and he advised me to go private, so I did. And this consultant was a lovely guy and he um, confirmed the diagnosis and that was that. And then I had to go and see my GP again and he prescribed me some antidepressants because that was what you got, that's what you got prescribed for fibromyalgia to start with. There were certain ones that were better than others, but I got, I got prescribed different, amitriptyline I think it was that I got prescribed. Um, and I went away and tried to take this, but my body actually at that point would not tolerate medications. I got the worst side effects that you could get from the medications. 
So that GP prescribed me a whole host of drugs, none of which my body could actually tolerate. Um, I used to get very, very terrible side effects, like the floors would, f would be moving. Um, I would be in worse pain. So, and I wasn't sleeping at this point. I was, get, I, was, I was probably averaging about two hours sleep a night. I was on painkillers constantly through the night, so I would be taking alternating painkillers, ibuprofen, paracetamol. He prescribed me tramadol, which I tried not to take uh, if I could help it, but really I did need it um, because the pain was so bad. And during this time, I was trying to look after these little twins, my twin daughters, who at that point would have been one and a half, maybe, um, one and a half year old. So that was very difficult because the other thing that was happening to me as well was that I was becoming less energetic. My energy was, I didn't have any energy, so I wasn't able to walk very far. So sometimes I would take the um, twins out in the buggy and then my legs would just collapse from underneath me so, and I would just fall to the floor and then I wouldn't be able to get back up and I'd only be trying to get to a class with them or... You know, I maybe just get to the shops, but I was never quite sure if I was actually going to make it to the shops and back. Um, after that, things worsened and worsened to the point where I would wake up in the mornings and I couldn't really see. So I was still trying to look after the girls and um, I wasn't able to work at this point. I was, I was able, some days I had more energy than others and it seemed to wax and, and wane. And some days I would have more energy, but I would have less cognitive function and other days I would be more cognitively okay but not be able to hardly walk. Times like there was times when I couldn't sleep through the night and I'd have to I'd get up like really really early in the morning three o'clock four o'clock in the morning and I would get the phone book out and I'd be looking for like help like the Samaritans and just anyone that I could get help from because I just was so low and felt so ill and so depressed and the GPs were not really able to help me much. They, they just, they, they didn't really know what to prescribe me. There was nothing out there really for fibromyalgics apart from antidepressants and painkillers. I read about low dose naltrexone in a book um, and the book was on the thyroid, but it did mention fibromyalgics in this book. It said that you know, it could, it could help in the four areas. And then I didn't really think much else about it after that. Things worsened a lot. I, got, I went back to see a private consultant again because we were so desperate for help. And the consultant said to me, why have you not taken any of the drugs that I suggested that you took last time? And I said, well, my GP hasn't offered them to me. And any time I've asked, it's just like, you just face brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. And he said, right, I said, currently at the moment, they're waiting to see this report from you to see if I actually have got fibromyalgia because they actually still don't believe that that's what it is. And um, I feel that they think that my problems are all in my head, that they're all mental issues. So he said, absolutely not. You're the worst case that I have ever seen. Um, cognit cognitively the worst case I've ever seen especially um, because by that point I couldn't really see and I really really struggled to even focus on him so um, I asked him about low dose naltrexone as well and he said 
he I showed him some information that had taken on off you know the um, internet and he read it and he said because it was only a pilot study he wasn't able to prescribe it for me but he would have been more than happy to prescribe it if I'd found somebody willing to um, you know he was happy to refer me to somebody that was prescribing it he would have been quite happy to do that if I got back in touch with him which was very very nice that he considered that because any other GP that I mentioned it to said there was absolutely no way that you will get that drug from us um, and I tried a few GPs and again it was just like hitting a brick wall none of them felt brave enough to take the risk to prescribe it even though the side effects are very very minimal compared to a lot of the drugs that I was already being prescribed by the GPs. On the drugs that I was taking off the GP, the antidepressants, they picked me up enough to be able to use my laptop to be able to do some studying on low-dose naltrexone. And I eventually found a GP in London that was prescribing. There were a few. There was a few around the country. Mm. He He was prescribing from a clinic in London and he was happy to do a consultation with me over the telephone. So he asked me a few questions like what I hope to achieve from taking the medication and I said well if it if I get any improvement at all then that would be brilliant. If not then obviously I haven't lost anything. That was my that was what I felt and he said um that's that's a good attitude to have and I'd be happy to prescribe it for you. So nowadays, life's very, very different from those three years where I was very ill and I'm able to, I would say, live a very fulfilling, normal life like everybody else, really, that's fit and healthy. So I like to... Um, I was able to do work on my house, which I wanted to do. I enjoy doing that in my spare time. And... Just do normal everyday tasks like washing the dishes. I'm able to stand at the sink, which is something I wasn't able to do. Or I could, but not for very long. Even just like manage to get from room to room without crawling. And much, I would say, on low-dose naltrexone, I feel much better than I did before I was actually diagnosed as fibromyalgic. What makes me frustrated is the fact that there are GPs out there that are able to prescribe this drug if they feel it is of therapeutic benefit, yet they won't take the risk or even take the time to research the drug to see if it would be of benefit to that particular individual. And even at times when I've handed information over, they have said, there is no way that you will receive that drug from this practice. Uh, my name is Brian Udell. I'm a physician and my specialty is pediatrics. My background is that I've seen uh, children as a neonatologist since the 1970s and that's babies who were very premature, very sick. And most of those babies in the 70s that I were taking care of was uh, a lot of uh, cocaine and drug addicted babies, alcoholism. And then mostly as the 90s came in, it was mostly children who had 
uh, cocaine and uh, um, other uh, stressful pregnancies. And it really wasn't until the 2000s, 2008, that I started seeing children with autism and got interested in what now looks to be the autism epidemic. And when you start to search for what's the autism epidemic, you, you realize that it's real, that since I was the director, the medical director of the follow-up clinic, all those years that I saw high-risk infants, I didn't see autism until it all of a sudden started emerging uh, around 2008 for me. Um, and at that time, we were seeing seven children a week, and now I could see 10 children a day. So the diagnosis doesn't really matter. The diagnostic criteria don't really matter. What matters is parents are coming to us because they have children who are not developing normally, and the regular medical community, the conventional medical community, doesn't seem to get it. That it's not only they don't even have the answer. So the, the parents that go uh, searching for answers uh, are, are going searching for answers that the medical community says itself that they don't have, specifically speech apraxia, the inability to speak. There's no medicine for that. Social isolation. Kids are in their own world. They're in a fog. There's not really medicine for a baby for that. And repetitive movements, okay, which are not seizures. They are some kind of be behavior that we don't understand called stims. And so those three things make up a core of, of symptoms that we call autism. And in 2006, uh, Dr. Jacqueline McCandless came out with a uh, paper that said that low-dose naltrexone would, was a valuable tool to be used. And I've been using it since about 2008 or 2009, um, and it's been very successful. And what I mean to convey um, to my parents is, uh, uh, you know, I didn't realize, for example, when I started doing autism, I didn't realize that naltrexone was even uh, available to us. But it's one of the few drugs that's listed in the pharmacopoeia as being on label for actually for autism. The word is in there, and there's and autism doesn't show up in a lot of treatments. And um, it's very simple to give, and it's very inexpensive, um, and uh, it's effective in a lot of cases. And and I think that the trick that every doctor is trying to figure out as we get older. They call it practice for a reason. And as we're practicing and getting better, what I'm trying to figure out is what works in who. What, what medicine should be applied to which specific patient. And there's not one kind of autism. I see 15 or 16 different basic variations of autism. And then there's within that, there's other things that are, are different. And so it's a very complicated condition. It doesn't have an easy answer. Symptoms are the main thing that we're attacking right now, not necessarily what the most upstream problem is. And LDN, low-dose naltrexone, has for me, proven to be uh, effective in children who have aggressive behaviors and in children who have very disruptive behaviors, um, uh, that, that tantrums are a big reason, um, and their, their immune system is affected. So just like Dr. McCandless wrote about in 2006, it's for immune modulation. The, the paper that she was writing was for immune modulation to help the immune system and um, mood, dis mood disorder or some of the word like that that she used. And, and whenever I show it to a parent, I always say, doesn't this look like your kid? <laughs> okay. And that's when they give it a try. And so um, when it was invented, Dr. McCandless realized. So it was, first of all, it was started in the 1980s. The whole idea was, was brought up at the first time in the 1980s, so that's almost 30 years ago that it's had 
thought put into it, how to figure out the dosing. Thought has been put into it about what the mechanism is. is. Prospective, randomized control studies have been done. Some of them do show a difference. Some of them don't. Most of them show the best difference in aggression in some of the behaviors, which is what I pick it in. Um, and and w when you use those criteria, I feel that this 2006 paper um, was important because she realized that it's very bitter. It's hard to give the medicine to the children, so it uh, has to, and it has to be given after 9 p.m. between 9 p.m. and 12 a.m. She's very specific about the immune modulation, and frankly, I'm pretty ignorant about how it's used in cancer and other patients. But at least for us, this was what was proposed for doctors who take care of autistic children, and um, so the dose is given as a cream because most kids are asleep by the time uh, 9 p.m. comes, or should be asleep, and um, it, the, the taste doesn't matter. Um, and, and when it's given that way, it's absorbed into the body at the correct time. And um, I, I would say, you know, something like 20 or 30 percent of my patients um, that I give it to uh, seem to have enough of a response that they continue to get it, which is the only way I can really understand whether a patient thinks it's helping. Uh, some of the patients just keep giving it because they say the kid stopped getting sick. He was getting sick every year, and it seems the immune system is really boosted, uh, and th that's a good enough reason for them not just to continue the medicine. And some of them, um, like Jacob, um, the mom feels that when it's when when it's left off, she feels a big difference in in how he's um, uh, behaving. Um, so it's very benign. It's a low dose. We know what to look for. Um, and it's been given for a lot of years, and for all those reasons, I believe it's a great choice um, when you're faced with just about bad choices or no other choice in autism. Uh, there's a certain type of patient that's getting sick all the time, and I can't understand why they're getting sick all the time. Nowadays, kids go to school much earlier, they're in daycare, and they get cooties all over each other all the time, and so I'm kind of used to it, but he was really getting sick, and he had a lot of behavioral issues that I felt like if I used my the regular therapies, um, they would be too stimulating to him and make his negative behaviors worse, his tantrums worse. And so all the mom, uh, the mom uh, uh, wanted me, wanted us to use um, um, something we use a lot. Uh, wanted us to use B12. She wanted. I have a protocol that includes a lot of uh, methyl B12, and that's. A pretty successful protocol when you're looking for some uh, uh, help in, in autism, but because of I just felt his his immune system was so involved, and that I wouldn't be able to be successful with something that jazzed him up more, um, that it would be a good try. And she reluctantly, I think she'll tell you that she reluctantly gave it a try, and it was it, it was you know, really day and night for that child. And, you know, I, I, I am aware that many of these documentaries are, are only anecdotal, so I don't want to um, promise that for other children. But I do try to pick it in the children who seem to have um, some special skill that is, like, amazing, and he already demonstrated some special skills, um, much smarter than you would think, much more clever. They figure stuff out, and so, and then they're getting sick all the time, and, and that's one of the criteria that I use to pick this cr protocol, especially if they're um, aggressive.
Well, it was a complete turnaround. I mean, I, 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 I saw a child who really, the two hardest things to take care of in autism are speech and language if they're apraxic. If they can't speak, there's nothing in our books that says it's going to make a child speak. And the other thing is um, behavioral aggression. Because what we really have for aggression is a bunch of medicines that either are stimulant medicines that slow you down and really fog your brain up, or medicines like for a schizophrenia and strong medicines for your brain like Prozac and Zoloft, which are really not meant for little kids. So, the, between, so his was behavior. His, his wasn't a, a much speech and language. It was more on the behavior side. And faced with the choice um, of giving a kid something that would make him stone basically, you know, maybe more compliant but not as aware, um, I felt that, it, you know, this was again a great choice and, and it did indeed change his life. I didn't know he was going to turn out and mom didn't either to be a prodigy, um, but I do find that a, a large proportion of my patients, and I've taken care of a lot of pediatric patients over 40 years, a large proportion of the patients in the autistic community have almost savant type qualities about puzzles and about directions and about colors and 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 they do things that I could never remember um, and, and and so I think that that part of their brain is working uh, really well. Jacob was born on September 29, 2007 and he was a healthy baby. Uh, all the hospital staff commented on what a good baby he was and um, so then when we took him home that changed pretty quickly. He started to become very um, difficult to comfort. He didn't sleep very much at all. Um, he just always uh, cried. He was always crying. Um, and then about a month, uh, when he was about a month old, he appeared to be choking one night. Um, right. and, and that's actually the, uh, the first time uh, I dialed 911 in my life. Um, it was uh, uh, that evening, Jacob was choking, and, and it was the scariest moment of our lives, actually. And uh, the um, paramedics con uh, concluded that it was uh, the reflux. He was um, choking on his reflux. Um, but uh, I'll never forget that evening. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, we, we were rushed to the emergency room, and then the, they confirmed that it was reflux, and so he started on medication for that. Um, and then um, shortly after that, we realized that he, when he started on solid foods, he couldn't tolerate any solid foods. He could only eat very pureed baby food. And if there was any type of texture at all, he would vomit. Um, and he was vomiting three or four times a day. Yeah. And That's projectile vomiting. Yeah. He would turn purple and he, it was like he was having trouble breathing. He would be coming out of his seat. and. Um, it was just very scary and very exhausting, and um, so we um, we then found that he was diagnosed with a feeding disorder. So we, he had to take feeding therapy, and then uh, shortly after that, they mm -hmm. they decided they told us that he also was speech delayed. He was about two at that time. He didn't really mm -hmm. start eating any solids until he was almost three. He was eating pureed baby food, so. Um, and then um, around that time when he started the therapies, he started um, developing some other odd behaviors. Right. He um, had an obsession with fans spinning. Um, he 
<clears throat> certain things had to be a certain way. The light switches had to be on a certain way. Just things need to be placed a certain way. And if we um, um, changed any of that, it would um, aggravate him and get him quite angry. Um, yeah, he would get very upset. Yeah. And then he, he also, uh, we noticed he couldn't tolerate noises um, mm -hmm. like a blender or toilets flushing or um, vacuum cleaner or mm -hmm. anything like that. Um, and he would just cover his ears and scream. And um, so, and then he started to get uh, um, aggressive as well with us, uh, kicking and punching and just being angry. And, you know, when I would, when I would ask him, questions he would say I don't want to tell you or if I said I, you know I love you he would say I don't love you um, and so then we my husband convinced me that we should have him evaluated by a specialist he my husband had two older boys so he had experience and he just felt like this wasn't you know this wasn't normal the things that that was going on with Jacob and so finally he convinced me we went to a specialist and um, Jacob was four at the time and she told us that Jacob had autism and so um, we were just devastated you know we just I mean it, couldn't believe it and and um, it, you know I went through a lot of different emotions disbelief and uh, anger and um, you know I was actually a, a month away from giving birth to our daughter and so um, and she was born a month later and then his Symptoms right. just got when, out of control. When, <clears throat> when Skylar was born, um, Jake, Jacob's aggression got worse. Um, the sounds of her screaming, crying, as a baby would, um, would just uh, get him that all the more aggressive. Um, there were many times we would m make certain that she wasn't anywhere in reach of Jacob, just in, in fear that he would hurt her, because it seemed as though that he would do anything that he could to stop it. Yeah. Um, and his aggression, unfortunately, just progressively got worse and worse. Uh, sounds bothered him more and more. Um, he was very, um, uh, he would run. I mean, he would take off. We, we had locks installed on our doors above high enough so that he wouldn't be able to open the doors because he would just dart out. Um, yeah, we couldn't go to um, restaurants. I mean, I couldn't even was, take him in the car with Sky, with our daughter without my husband because he, if she started crying, he would try to kick her or just throw mm -hmm. things at her to make her stop. And it was, it was, and then if I yelled at him, he was throwing things at me and it was just, it was very stressful. Right. Um, so we, we were asking advice mm -hmm. from other people. We didn't know what to do and um, it was it, recommended that we try well, <clears throat> therapy. Right. And so we tried um, occupational therapy for about a month and it just, even to drive to occupational therapy was dangerous. And right. just, I just wasn't seeing any um, outcome. And I felt like we needed something, you know, we needed something done quickly right. because this was, you know, a scary situation for us. And he, you know, it's tough because um, he wasn't reciprocating that love that, you know, what all parents yearn for with their child, you know, the, the reciprocation of the hugs and, and the, uh, you know, I love you and I love you back. And we weren't getting any of that from Jacob. Um, the mornings um, that, um, every morning that Jacob would get up, we would, uh, we were always startled by the abrupt 
slamming of the doors, um, the holes in the walls yeah, the that he was causing for just his aggression. Um, and uh, it's tough because, you know, when you have a child that's, you know, you, you don't have that and you just wish there was something that you can find or do um, to, to turn that around. I decided to look, um, try to find some books on autism just so I could understand Jacob better. And I went to the library and it just happened to be April Autism Awareness Month and so they had a whole display of books and I just grabbed as many as I could and um, brought them home and uh, two, two or three of them were on biomedical treatment for autism. And so as I was reading um, these books, it was just story after story of these children that they had all the same challenges that Jacob was having and these kids were getting better um, through different treatments that sounded pretty safe, um, changes in diet and, you know, um, treating underlying causes like yeast right. or, you know, bacterial infections or other things like that. And so I thought, well, this is worth a try. I mean, it sounds good, you know, and, and it's working for these other people. And so I told my husband, you know, I really want to try this. And, and so he, he said, let's go for it. And so we, I just started um, researching, trying to find a doctor, and we ended up finding the, um, the Child mm -hmm. Development Center of America, which is Dr. Udell. And um, so we, I really wanted a doctor who was an MD um, uh, that, you know, could prescribe medicine as well. And so that was Dr. Udell. And so we, we made an appointment. On the first appointment, Dr. Udell prescribed um, something called the glutathione. And it's, um, you know, I was a little bit skeptical because this is a supplement and what is this really going to do for him? But um, about three weeks into it, Jacob's language just, he just started, um, it just exploded. I mean, usually on the way home from, he took a science class and on the way home I would ask him, how was your day? What did you do in class? And he would either say, I don't, I don't know, or I don't want to tell you. And this particular day, he told me everything he did from beginning to end. And I was like, oh my goodness. I remember just staring at him in the rearview mirror and just, I couldn't believe how, how he was answering me. And so um, my husband said, oh my gosh, I, the same thing. He's been talking so much. And um, so then um, the next, you know, the next visit, Dr. Udell told us as far as, you know, allergies, we should change his diet and things like that. And, and so we did. And then um, the following visit, um, I was all excited because I had something in mind that I wanted to try that I had researched. And so I went in there with my ideas. And Dr. Udell said, well, what's your biggest challenge with Jacob? Because even at that time, he was still displaying a lot of aggression. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Udell asked, me, you know, what's your, your biggest challenge with Jacob? And I said, well, he's, he has a lot of anxiety. He's aggressive. He always seems angry. He's aggressive towards his sister. That's the biggest thing. Um, and he said, well, you know, I think we should try this. It's called naltrexone. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, naltrexone, that sounds like a drug. And I, I got very upset. And I remember, like, being teary-eyed and thinking that you're not supposed to be that type of a doctor. I don't want to drug my son. And he said, okay, calm down. This isn't what you think. This is, it's a very low dose and um, it's given at night in, a, in the form of a cream and you, you rub it on the wrist. And basically, at, 
smiling mm -hmm. at night, um, you rub it on the, the wrist of the child and it blocks the endorphins for um, the first four hours that the child sleeps. And then when the body realizes that there's no endorphins, it upregulates and produces a lot more endorphins for the next 15 to 18 hours. It can actually benefit, you know, and they're finding benefits in children with autism. So um, that night we put, uh, rubbed the cream at when he was asleep. We waited till he was sleeping because right. we knew he wouldn't let us do it while he was awake. We rubbed right. the cream on his wrists and um, thought, we'll see. And then uh, the it very next morning, he, the first thing he said was, good morning, mommy. Right. And that was, I mean, I thought, okay, <laughs> this is, this it, can't be happening. This is a coincidence it or was, something. Because it was life changing. It was the yeah. first time that we weren't abruptly awoken by a slamming door. Um, Mornings were the worst for him. Right. And it was, um, it was incredible. I couldn't yeah. believe it. And it the, was I overnight. mean, the rest of the day, he was good. He was happy. Um, you know, he, he didn't like it when Skylar cried, but he, he didn't try anything aggressive with her. He would just say, Mommy, Skylar's crying. <laughs> right. And I was still on, you know, autom automatically trying to stop her right away because I was afraid of what would happen. But but he was so much calmer. And then, you know, each day that passed, it, you know, we realized that it had to be the LDN because it, he never went back. He just, he, he just got better and better. Um, and then we were able to go places with him, unlike prior. Yeah. Um, we were able to go to restaurants and, and do the very things that we wanted, and even take him to the very places that all children love to go and play. That we right. uh, couldn't wait to take him. You know, play video games, just the little simple things. You know, uh, ride on the go karts. You know, things that we knew we couldn't take him yeah. because he was just aggressive. He was aggressive, and he'd take off and run. Um, and then. So. Um, about a month into it, he started to develop little bumps on his wrist. He started getting a rash from the medication. So we were like, devastated because we didn't, you know, it was working so well and I couldn't imagine going right. back. And so we called Dr. Dell and he said, okay, we'll, we'll try it in a liquid form. Right. And so we got the liquid and um, that even was even more effective. Um, then at that point he started asking, you know, allowing us to give him hugs and kisses and right. even asking for it and um, saying, I love you. And mm -hmm. I mean, this was something I thought I would never hear from him again. And so it was, it was yeah. just incredible how, how much it, it changed his life and our lives. Well, uh, we administer it um, at night, um, just before he goes to bed. We put it in a little applesauce and right before he goes to bed, we give it to him, usually 8.30. 8.30. Um, you know, give it to him, brush his teeth, and then he goes to bed. He, he sleeps great through the night. I think right. it may even help with that. And um, he wakes up the next day happy. Um, and honestly, you know, we have done a lot of different treatments with Jacob, but LDN is by far the most effective. I mean... We've seen the most results. By yeah, far. I mean, most people would never know that Jacob was diagnosed with autism, when, you know, three years ago, if they met him today. And honestly, I don't believe he would get that diagnosis if he were evaluated today. My husband plays, and so one day I was in the kitchen, and Jacob was, it was just Jacob and I here, and I started here. I heard the song that was, my husband was playing the night before, and I thought, who's here? 
And so I went into the piano room and it was Jacob and he was just just three, just turning four. Right. And so I was I thought, Oh my goodness, Jacob, that's you? And I you know, I call my <laughs> husband and and my husband started teaching him a few things, he was picking them up so quickly. And, and we thought at that time, um, we then started looking for a teacher. Uh, it was hard to find one because at his age, there aren't very many uh, teachers that wanted to uh, sit with a just turn, then three-year-old turning four-year-old, but uh, trying to convince them that, no, Jacob is quite unique, you know, he just has something, something special. Yeah. Uh, then fortunately enough, we actually uh, found someone who was actually willing to uh, take him on, <laughs> and um, she works wonderful with him, and since then, um, Jacob has um, excelled tremendously um, on the piano. Uh, he amazes me every every day. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, he's playing Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, Chopin. Chopin. Actually, he was um, he performed on Good Morning America, um, yeah, the we View, put a, CNN, right. HLN, local channels, local news. Um, uh, he was invited. He played on the Steve Harvey Show as well, um, and it was amazing. We just put a YouTube video out there, and um, it just. Um, it went viral. Yeah. I would say I cannot imagine Jacob performing that first performance on Good Morning America had he not been introduced to LDN. I right. can't, Most definitely I don't not. believe that that would have we ever would, been a possibility. We wouldn't have been able to even get him on the stage, let alone to sit uh, long enough uh, to, for, an for an interview. Yeah. Um, and. You know, going to these uh, places, naturally there's a lot of noise and a lot of sounds. Um, yes, LDN has certainly made a big difference and has helped even in Jacob's ability to be able to sit down and express himself through the music. Um, um, as opposed to perhaps maybe um, today, I, I can only imagine how many keys I wouldn't have on the piano had it not been for the LDN. I have seen, aside from the rash, from the cream, I haven't seen any side effects at all. None. From LDN. Yeah. So, I would highly recommend it to any family, you know, um, touched by autism. I think it's worth a try. It's not expensive. We actually order our um, LDN from um, a pharmacy that's nearby but we actually have it delivered yeah. and um, we I just you know Dr. Dell writes the prescription 
and faxes it over and then compound pharmacy. this is compounding pharmacy. Mm -hmm. It's not covered by our insurance, but it's pretty inexpensive. It's um, about $29 a month and then we pay for the, the shipping because we have it overnighted. We choose to have it overnighted because we just don't want it sitting, you know, in the mail. Skylar is Jacob's younger sister. She's three. Um, we started noticing some delays with her at about 12 months and she started seeing Dr. Udell mm -hmm. and um, we did a few things and then we, after some blood work, we re realized that she has a low immune system. And right. so um, Dr. Udell said, well, let's get her started on LDN because that also helps with the immune system. And so at, at that time, Skylar um, wasn't aggressive or anything, but she was very, she used to just follow me around all day with her thumb in her mouth and just kind of whine. She just wanted to be held all day. Yeah, she wasn't a happy camper. Yeah. And, um, you know, I didn't quite notice uh, an overnight change in her the way we did with Jacob, but she very shortly after that became very happy. You know, uh, she, she entertains herself. She's a very happy child now. She still takes LDN. It did help her immune system. It's, it's not exactly well. where we want it, but it's better than it was. Much better. Yeah. And she's the happiest, the happiest child that we know. <laughs> so it's, it, I mean, I don't know if LDN will work for, you know, other children. All we know is that it worked for ours. And if, you know, if you have a child with autism, it's definitely worth a try. I would say it's worth it. There's, there's no side effects that we know of. Um, it's not like a typical, you know, it's not a stimulant or an antidepressant or anything like that. It seems so natural. Um, and it's, it's been a miracle for our family. So if you were looking to try and start taking LDN, the side effects that you would be expecting to have most, possibly a mild headache, possibly a, a slight stomach upset, but these are generally very, very transient and go away within a couple of weeks. One of the most frequent questions we get is, um, which drugs can I take with LDN? And the answer to that really is almost anything, but you really have to check with a health professional first. Even if you're on morphine or even if you're on tramadol or one of these painkillers that all over the internet it says, no, 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 you must never take it with LDN. If you work with us and or your health professionals like your doctor or a nurse, there can quite often be a way of managing the regime of the way you take your tablets so that you are still able to take the drugs that you need for the conditions that you have. That being said, if you're on regular doses of painkillers that contain opiates, such as codeine, dihydrocodeine, tramadol, and you're taking those regularly and or have sustained release medications, most definitely do not start taking LDN without checking with a health professional first. People often ask us if you can take LDN with alcohol. Can I take a drink with this? There really aren't that many, many drugs that you can't take a drink with. So you can take alcohol with almost every drug that we prescribe if you want to. It's all about quantity. One glass of wine isn't going to do you any harm if you are taking LDN, but if you're drinking a bottle of vodka a day, it is going to do you harm. So what, it's what we say to most people, everything in moderation, um, but generally, as long as your liver function is okay and your kidney function is okay, you don't really need to modify your current lifestyle to take LDN other than looking out for certain medications, and that can be solved just by sending a list of the medications that you take to what, either a pharmacist or a doctor who's involved in the prescription or dispensing of LDN. Often people try to get prescriptions for LDN on the NHS. 
Generally, what I would do is I would have a very frank discussion with your own GP explaining that you've tried X, Y and Z and the medications you've tried and the treatments you've tried that were NHS funded. I would then take with them, with you, uh, an information pack such as the one provided by the LDN Research Trust. Ask the doctor to read through it and make a repeat appointment in a month or two months at their leisure. So allow the doctor to look at it, um, do some research on their own and find out in their own head how they feel about it. Inside the pack, there will be contact numbers and email addresses for the doctor to contact other people in the LDN group. So, for example, many of the phone calls I take every week are from interested GPs all across the country wanting to hear just a little bit more about LDN before they give it on the NHS. When the GP writes the prescription for LDN on the NHS, if they, ha- they have to do it in a very specific way and they have to very carefully specify exactly how it's to be made and how it's to be done. And that is also available in every available information pack. So the, the short answer to that is you really you must go to your GP with lots of information and be, be prepared to wait. If you're unsuccessful in getting an LDN prescription from your NHS GP in the UK or in your, your country residence, privately LDN prescriptions cost between 20 to £25 initially and then round about £20 a month for the actual medication. That can vary by about 50% depending on which formulation you're taking and how much you're taking, but it's really not very expensive to get it privately. The problem we have is that there is no proper clinical data, and because it's used for such a wide range of conditions, it's very difficult to pinpoint. However, my personal opinion is that if something makes people feel better and they can afford it and it's available, I don't think they should be prevented from trying it. And if it works for them, then I'm very, very happy for them.